Let's open our Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses. We've, had, uh, we've been going through this series, Encounters with Christ, and we've had basically, I, I counted out 15 different messages on different encounters that people had with the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. The most important one is the one that you've had with him. And I hope as we look through these that you will see some similarities of how you met Jesus and perhaps uh, some, some ways and opportunities that we might look for so that we can introduce him to others. The title of the message this morning, A Healing That Was Through the Roof. And as soon as you hear that, you know what the passage is about. Now this story is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 2 through 8, and in Luke's chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. But I'd like us to follow Matthew's account, and we'll draw in some of those other verses. Jesus was displaying the power of God to heal the sick. It's always helpful to know the chronology and the context as we drop ourselves into these different passages. But here, the healing miracle took place early on in the ministry of Jesus. He had returned from his first preaching ministry in Galilee. Let me read from Matthew's Gospel just three verses that, that help us with the context. Jesus went, out, went, went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of diseases among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those who had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee, and from Decapolis, and from Jerusalem, and from Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Now this, again, is early in his ministry. He has not preached the Sermon on the Mount yet. He has only called six of the twelve disciples. Uh, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, James, his brother, John, Philip, and, Matthew, uh, and Nathaniel. Matthew is going to be called in, in the next section, here still in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And as we think about those calling of the disciples, this puts it real early on in his ministry. Now let's look at our text in Mark chapter 2. This miracle took place in Capernaum, verse one, verses 1 and 2. And again, he entered into Capernaum for some day, after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway, many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. It was noised that he was in the house. The word spread, and people heard the news that Jesus had finished his preaching tour, and he was back in town. He was back in Capernaum. The original text doesn't have the definite article before the word house there, and some translations reflect that by saying he was at home. D. Edmund Hebert says the house may have been Simon Peter's, although some think the reference is to where Jesus lived still with his mother in Capernaum. Luke adds insight to what was happening in that city of Capernaum on this particular day. And it came to pass on a certain day, this is Luke 5, verse 17, as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, 
which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. That is, the power of the Lord to heal was present with Jesus. So not only were people flocking to see this Jesus who had returned, the Pharisees and scribes also were there from all these different places, from Galilee, from Judea, from Jerusalem, And that would make sense because they felt that they were the ones who were responsible for God's work among the people. They had to see what was going on, what was happening. There was this professional jealousy. Well, who were they that showed up? The Pharisees, the New Testament comes from the Hebrew word parash, which means to separate. So these are separated ones. If you all go all the way back to the Babylonian captivity, and when they returned to the land, the Jews were returning to the land of Israel, some of them wanted to reacquaint themselves with God's law. They wanted to study it. They wanted to obey it. They didn't want to fall into the the foreign influences that they had been in. Uh, Josephus tells us at this time there were probably about 6,000 members of the Pharisees. And these Pharisees were... We're here to make sure that Israel wasn't led astray away from the Old Testament laws. So the Pharisees were there. Also doctors of the law, literally teachers of the law, rabbis. They also were from all of these cities, Galilee to the north, Judea in the south, and Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. Matthew and uh, Luke use the word scribes, referring to their task of, of writing and keeping legal records. Godet, in his commentary, says the scribes didn't constitute a theological or a political party like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were professional lawyers. Well, they were there, again, to see if Jesus was going to be teaching anything that was contrary to the Old Testament Mosaic law. And there's a dilemma that they were facing. They were trying to accuse Jesus of breaking the law and of blasphemy, it comes up in this text, but how could he do these miracles unless God was with him? And that's what Nicodemus asked early on in John chapter 3 and verse 2. No man can do these miracles, he said, that thou doest except God be with him. So here's the dilemma. You know, is, he, is he breaking God's law or is he doing God's work? Well, what were these people doing in in Capernaum on this certain day? They were sitting by, it says. The words mean that they they were remaining, they were dwelling. They were sitting down to stay. They were there to find out anything that they could use against Jesus, and they would stay as long as it took. And so they were there. Early in the Lord's ministry, we see the opposition of his enemies, the religious leaders, being uh, just beginning to build. It may have started when he cleansed the temple, back in John chapter 2. One writer says the presence of the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem is easily explained in the, if, if the conflict related uh, in John 5 had already taken place. John 5 was the healing of the, the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And Geldenhaus and others agree that uh, that happened this, this event happened after the healing of that paralytic man, that paralyzed man at the pool. And the Jews reacted there saying that Jesus had healed a man on the Sabbath. Not only had done that, he had 
told the man, pick up your bed and walk, and that constituted work, so he was encouraging others to break the Sabbath. But even worse, he said that God was his father in John 5.18, and it says saying or making himself equal with God. So that opposition from the religious crowd would continue to increase until on the third day of Passover week, Jesus pronounced what we read in Matthew 23, the woes upon the scribes, the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. He calls them vipers. This didn't go over too well, but that was, it was coming to a head. And by the end of that week, they had crucified him on Calvary's cross. Again, not because of their anger and hostility, but all of this was in God's plan, using the wrath of man to praise him, if you will, so that we can have eternal life. The house was immediately crowded. Verse 2 says, many were gathered together straightway. It didn't take long. In a short period of time, they were there. Another description says there was no room to receive any more people. Now, in this area and time and culture, people would feel free to just walk into someone else's house. Uh, They didn't have to be invited You say, well, that sounds kind of strange. Well, if you're ever in the hospital and and you realize how many people just have access to you, you'll understand that's the way it was in their homes. We saw last week how the sinful woman entered the house of Simon the Pharisee, anointed the feet of Jesus, and how did she get in? Well, this was common. You just walk through, walk in. Uh, Here it says, Jesus preached the word unto them. And this is an amazing thing as I think of it. The miracles were being done so that people would believe in Jesus and be saved. John 20, 31 tells us that. Uh, These are written, these miracles are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So the miracles were there so that people would believe and be saved. But the message Jesus preached was the logos here, the word. He wasn't just doing miracles. He wanted to teach them and preach the gospel to them. The miracles were there to prove that he was who he said he was. He was God, and he was the message. In fact, as we read in the scripture this morning, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Capital letters for word there. And that word in the Greek is logos. So here you have the living logos preaching the, the word, the, the message of, of, uh, of salvation to people. There's no New Testament. Jesus himself was the word, the message of salvation. So we preach Jesus, the disciples said later. Now a man who was paralyzed was brought to, to the Lord in, in verses 3 through 5. In verse 3 we read, And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born or carried of four. The text says that he was sick of the palsy. The Greek word there is paraludikos. It's from paraluo, which means to loosen or to relax. And so this person didn't have any strength in his, his bodily frame or his, his, his muscles wouldn't support his weight. He could not move. He wasn't able to stand. He wasn't able to walk. He was carried on this bed. There were four who carried him to Capernaum. Uh, They had heard that Jesus could heal these that came. They believed that Jesus would heal this, this particular friend. Probably friends of his were carrying that cot. Hebert thinks that the men were from the city of Capernaum itself. 
We don't know if they were. If not, they didn't have a long way to go. Perhaps he was used to asking them, I need to be here today, would you mind taking me? And uh, that was his only way to get around. But we do see that they were persistent. They didn't let the, cl- the crowd in the house stop them from getting to Jesus. Maybe they'd been encouraging each other as they were headed to the house, saying, you know, this might be the last time we have to carry you. Uh, they had that kind of faith. They knew Jesus could. They believed that Jesus would. And that's the faith that Jesus saw in them, and, and he states it later. So they carried him on a bed. Uh, Jesus called it a bed in Mark 2.9. Uh, Luke uses a different word uh, that's translated in, in Mark 7.4 as a table uh, where they would, they, would, they would eat. It was a low platform. So it could be a pallet. It could be a, a thick mattress. Uh, we know that Jesus tells him to take up thy bed and walk, just like he did with the man at the pool of Bethesda. So it must have been some kind of a, a, a pad that could be rolled up and carried by one person. Here, it's carried by four because of the weight of their friend, the weight of the man. Well, they ran into a problem. We see it in, in verse 4 of Mark 2. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, that is the throng or the crowd, that same word is used in Luke 5.19, and let me read Luke 5.18 and 19 because he has a little more insight into what they ran into when they got to the house. Behold, men brought in, uh, men brought in a bed, uh, on a bed, a man that was taken with palsy, and they sought means to bring him in, to lay him before him, that is to bring him right before the Lord. And when they could not find uh, by what way they might bring him in, because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop. And so that word multitude is the same as the word press. It's just translated in our English text differently. Warren Wiersbe says, How tragic it is when spectators stand in the way of people who want to meet Jesus. And I thought about uh, one time we had someone come into the parking lot here at Grace and they couldn't find a spot. And one of the ushers said he saw him leave. And I well, oh boy, I wish, I wish people who could walk would park as far away as they can so that they could get here and leave the spot for someone to stay. You've all seen it before, maybe not in this church, but in other churches where someone is looking for a seat and they say, oh, that's my seat. <laughs> you can't sit here. We don't have assigned seating. We want people to come. We want to be conscious of that. But even more importantly, we don't want to do anything or say anything that would cause someone to be turned off to the gospel. We, want to, we don't want to hold people away from Christ. We, we, we don't want to be, as, as, as was said here, that they couldn't get there when they wanted to. Um, they came up with a solution. In Mark 2, the second half of verse 4, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. Um, in Luke 5, 19, it says, they let him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And so here, if it was the house of Simon Peter in Capernaum, uh, 
There's some interesting thoughts. A biblical archaeological review had, a, had an article 25 years ago. It's reappeared just uh, in October of this year, and you can look it up online. If you want the address, uh, the web address, let me know. But it tells us a lot about Peter's house and what it, what it looked like. And there are a lot of other uh, cultural, uh, historic books that tell us what houses were like in those days. And so the roof was flat, that's obvious. It was accessible by stairs or perhaps by a ladder on the outside of the lower level. Often, stairs were between two houses and they were shared by each house to get up to uh, the roofs on each, house, each upper level. The houses had smaller rooms in the, on the downstairs level, usually a courtyard in the middle that was open and so people could come in from the street. That would explain again why people just wandered in. Uh, with no gate there, this was a simple house in, in, the, in the archaeological review uh, writing. It said uh, Simon Peter is a fisherman. It wasn't a, an extravagant house. And so those rooms in the downstairs level would support the upstairs level. Um, beams would have provided the strength to support the roof. They were placed about three feet apart. Smaller sticks would be uh, put down to cover those spans between the beams. The framework was then covered with brush or thatching and held together with mud. It was common to use uh, a smaller roller, uh, a small a tool that would roll over after it rained, and that would smooth and compress the, the material there, making it progressively stronger. Luke uses another word, karamas, sounds like ceramic. It describes clay tiles that were used in Gentile homes. And since both words are used, it must have been that these tiles were placed along with this mud and thatch uh, roofing uh, that they had to get through. So how did they tear off this material? Mark says that they uncovered the roof, and he also says when they had broken it up. Now, the word for uncovered just simply means to unroof. And the breaking up means to remove gradually by breaking the, the pieces and pulling them out. And, and you and I have, have probably, if you've grown up in, in church and in Sunday school classes and you've seen flannel graph stories, you try to imagine what it would be like from the vantage point of those within the house looking up. They probably didn't hear what was going on because there's so much noise, a lot of people around or in the room with them. The first indication may have been when a little dust fell from the top. Chunks of debris started falling. Maybe they saw the sunlight streaming in. And maybe the hands reaching in to tear it back. I can picture these faces of the men on the roof looking in to see, did we guess right? Are we over the place where Jesus is standing? As the opening got larger, the attention of the crowd beneath them grew. And when the cot began to be lowered, they must have known by then that these four men were intent on getting their patient and friend right there to see the great physician, the only one who could help him. Jesus forgave the man's sins. In Mark 2, 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, and said unto, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. 
Jesus saw their faith. He recognized that they believed. As I said before, they had heard that Jesus could heal. They believed that he would heal their friend. And they fought through all of these difficulties to find a way to bring him to Jesus. Much has been said about the faith of the four who carried this paralytic man who had the faith that Jesus could heal him. It's a great point. The word there is plural. It indicates that these men who brought the man who needed healing had faith. But I wouldn't rule out the faith of the paralytic either. The text just says when Jesus saw their faith. It includes, I believe, the man on the cot who couldn't walk. He may have been the one urging the others to bring him to Jesus. Maybe it was his idea, let's, let's go up to the roof. We've gotten this far, let's not stop now. And Jesus said to the paralyzed man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Godet puts it like this, Seeing the persevering confidence of the sick man, recognizing in him one of those whom his father draws to him, John 6, 44, he receives him with open arms by telling him that he is forgiven. By saying this, Jesus was really letting the scribes and the Pharisees that were there know that he is God. He could have healed the man physically. He'd been doing that throughout the region. But he was here to show that he is the divine son of God who came to take away the sin of the world. And so he threw down the gauntlet. And they were, they were just looking for something like this. So they picked it up. They jumped because they were looking for a way to accuse him of blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. The Pharisees thought this is, this is blasphemy. Let's read that in, in verses 6 through 9. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why did this man thus speak blasphemies? Now, they didn't accuse him out loud. This was all going on within their own minds, in their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and take up thy bed and walk? So they were jumping to their conclusions. Matthew and Mark uh, say certain scribes. Luke says the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason. And that word is, is, is a word we get our word dialogue from. Dia through legizomai words. They were, they were going back and forth with all of these, these scenarios in their mind. How are we going to approach this? This dialogue was taking place in their hearts, in their minds, why, why is he so blatant? This, this has to be blasphemy. He's just granted forgiveness to this man. And only God can forgive sin. And Jesus knew their thoughts. It says that he knew immediately. He didn't have to read their expressions on their faces or look for the whispering and the murmuring between the men. Psalm 44, 21 says, He knoweth the secrets of the heart. He always has. He knows the secrets of the hearts today. And Jesus knew their thoughts. He, it says he perceived in his spirit. 
The word there for perceive is a word that talks about having full knowledge. There was no doubt. He knew exactly what they were thinking. And he confronted them. He asked why they were having this dialogue, internal dialogue about these things. He offered proof of his deity. Um, This is what they were thinking. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to take up your cot and walk? Why did they reason this way? Because anybody could say the words, your sins are forgiven. And how do you know the proof? But if they say, take up your bed and walk, then they, they observe that. So they're saying in their minds, wrongfully so, because it's harder to forgive sins, right? But he, he's saying uh, it's easier because we can't, we can't see the end result. So to prove the authority to forgive sins, Jesus shows his authority over physical healing. This is our last point. Jesus healed the man to prove that he is God and can forgive sins. In verse 10, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, he saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thine house. And immediately he rose, took up the bed, and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. Jesus worded the intended result of the miracle, that ye may know. He referred to himself here as the Son of Man. Now Daniel, in the Old Testament, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, used the term the Son of Man in a prophetic way to talk about the Messiah who would come. And Jesus, this is one of his terms that he uses all through his ministry to refer to himself The phrase, Son of Man, is found 82 times in the Gospels. Jesus was the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Son of God, speaking of his deity, the Son of Man, his humanity. He was both, 100% of each, not half of, of, of one and the other. So as God, he can forgive sin. He proves this in the miracle. As man, he was the one who became our sin bearer. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He's the son of man. But he said, but that ye may know the son of man hath power on earth to forgive sins. But that, so that, in order that you might know, you may perceive, you might understand, hath power. Here's the word, I have the right, the authority. Luke uses the same word. On earth, here's where people need to know their sins are forgiven. He has power on earth to forgive sin. Jesus commanded the man to arise. That was the command he needed to obey in order to be healed. Arise. He could have said, I can't. I'm paralyzed. You can do anything that God tells you to do. We've heard before, behind God's commands, he places his omnipotence. He invites all who will to come. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He tells us to believe, Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. 
And so when he calls you to be saved, he gives you the ability to respond to that call. And then came the instructions on what to do next. When God forgives your sins, he'll lay out everything that you need to know for his purpose in your life. The command was personal. The instructions were specific. Take up thy bed. Go thy way into thine house. It's the same place that he's, he was living before, but now everything has been transformed by God's grace. And as you are saved, God tells you, return to where you are. I'll give you the things to do. Make sure that you're just doing everything now as a saved individual. And everything changes when you have that eternal perspective. And the man obeyed. He says he did it immediately. So when God tells you what to do, don't put it off. Don't say, I'll finally get around to it. Do it as soon as he tells you. All were amazed and glorified God. He arose, took up the bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. We've never seen anything like this before. He went before them all. His obedience to the instructions of Jesus were evident. Others saw this. And they were amazed. Literally, this word for amazed means uh, it's existemi. Ex is outside of, and stami is to stand. They were standing outside themselves. They were beside themselves. And they glorified God. When God saves you, when he does a miracle of grace in your heart, he does it for his glory. We're all just sinners. The salvation, the work of grace is what he is receiving the glory for. What did you do to be saved? <laughs> I trusted him. I took him at his word. What did he do? He did it all. He sent his son. He revealed himself through the son. He revealed himself through his word. He called me by his Holy Spirit. He's the one who gets the glory. Paul said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Well, there are several applications that we can make as we go through this, this passage that we've looked at this morning. You may be in the same condition spiritually as this paralyzed man was. Spiritually, there's no, you cannot do anything to help yourself. You're lost. You need God's intervention. Don't let anything keep you from coming to Christ. You say, well, it's too crowded. I don't think I can get there. He's opened the door. He's opened the way. Come to him. Come to him today. Believe on him and have eternal life. God may be using this miracle to challenge you to get involved in helping others to come to, to the Lord you know he's the only one that can help them. He's the only one that could help you. And there are no impossible situations that God can, you know, he's too hard of a case for God to save. No, he's not. God can work in his heart. But you might need to help. Don't be discouraged when things seem impossible. Also, get others involved. One person couldn't have carried the cot. He needed to find three other people. Everybody has a corner that they can carry. And God might be calling you, pick up this, this corner of this cot. I need to get that person to be saved. 
Are you willing to pick up that corner? And then third, remember that the souls of people are more important than roofs. It's exciting to be on the verge of a, of a building program, improving the facilities here at the church. But we ought to be more interested in building the kingdom of God than in building buildings. And there are people who have eternal souls that will live someplace forever in whom we can invest our lives. And that's what the building is for, so we can reach more people. But yeah, I, I always thought, when I, when I realized this may have been Simon Peter's house, I wonder if he was thinking, who's going to fix this roof? <laughs> Don't worry about that. Lives are more important than things. And so as I close in prayer and as we go our ways, don't lose the corner of the bed that God wants you to carry. Okay, let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for those who told us about the Savior. And I pray that you would give us a greater burden for the lost, a greater faith knowing that you can save, and a greater confidence in bringing others to you. Dismiss us now with your blessing. Bring us back this evening for our evening service. We'll give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.